Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, brought to you by Idiom Brewing Company in Frederick, Maryland. Hey everyone, I'm your host Chris Sands, and today I am joined by Gary Hill, the co-founder of Nine North Rum, and also, from what I've been told, just an expert in rum and spirits in general. Yeah, welcome. Uh, thanks uh, for having me here. I really appreciate it. Um, I have spent a lot of time working with some with rum and other spirits, and uh, it's something I really enjoy. So I get passionate about it. What um, I guess how did how did you get into the alcohol world? Because I, I I I was introduced to Gary by Braden Bumpers um, on Cap's favorite. Uh, a liquor purveyor, <laughs> uh, and he has obviously talked you up a lot and said that you've been involved in the industry for quite mm-hmm. some time and I guess several capacities. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what got you into the world of spirits? So I used to be a bar manager, um, bar restaurant manager. I uh, spent most of that time in Chicago, and... Um, I always enjoyed the bar side of things. Um, I enjoy the products. I enjoy the people at bars and bartenders. It's just a really nice environment. It's kind of fun and relaxed. And people, you get an opportunity to really share uh, new and interesting things, whether it's a new cocktail or whether it's a new spirit. And I was looking for kind of a transition out of the hospitality industry, but kind of still stay within it. And um, that's when I started looking at, at that time, it was kind of when small distilleries were going from like, double digits to triple digits in the country. And it seemed like a really good opportunity to kind of make that transition to more of what we would call like a supply side, you know, making it and working with it and still getting to share things with people and share spirits and cocktails um, in a broader sense to be able to travel a little bit more and meet new people and do new things with that. So when um, when did Nine North become mm. a, a thing? So early on, my, the, kind of the first inspiration was for the, um, it's labeled Especiado now, but it's a, essentially our spiced rum. And so working in those bars, you see on the shelf three, four different rums. You see, you know, you're pretty much your normal white rum that you see everywhere else. You see um, some sort of aged rum, and then you'll see a spiced rum. And those spiced rums are normally cinnamon, cardamom, clove, and a lot of vanilla. And it seemed like there was one, an opportunity within rum, but also within spice rum specifically to do something that was more, a little bit more savory, a little bit more balanced between the sweet and the spice and to bring in kind of a unique flavor profile. So honestly, I just started doing infusions at home, doing different blends of bases off from off the shelf rums and doing infusions of different types of spices, herbs, things like that before I settled on a combination of uh, green tea, jasmine, uh, Meyer lemons, Ville orange, uh, along with a little bit of chrysanthemum jasmine for like it was a jasmine green tea, and then using a brown sugar simple syrup uh, to add some sweetness to it. And that was kind of the basis for the product. This was uh, the first product that we put out. Nine North uh, refers to the parallel that passes through Panama. Uh, where the rum is made. All of these are imported from Panama. They're distilled and um, aged down there and blended down there as well. Okay. Why <laughs> Why did you choose that? Panama? Yeah. Um, they have a reputable, um, a good reputation for um, producing rum. There's a wide variety. You can get anything from fresh off the still to 25 years old. Um, they have a really interesting blending process. 
And um, they were also somebody we could work with really easily. In the rum industry, it's a little bit harder to just go to a producer and say, hey, I, you know, I'm looking to do a small batch to get started. And what can you do for me? And most of the distilleries that have been established are looking for large volumes. Okay. So they were also able to work with us on kind of the scale that we wanted to. Is there much less of a, a world of that than like the um, whiskey? In like, terms of sourcing? Uh, like, yeah, of source. Like, because obviously that's like, huge for still like the whiskey world where there's plenty of brands that don't produce anything themselves. They buy right. the whiskey from someplace else. Is that less common with rum or is it still like the same sort of? It's actually the basis of that industry for a long time. Oh, okay. So, so there are a lot fewer rum producers a lot. than there are brands. Yes. Um, so traditionally what would happen is um, rum would be produced in one, one of the Caribbean islands um, or Guiana, and um, the English were huge consumers of it, so it would all get shipped back after production and blended in England. And that's still a tradition that carries on. There's a blending house there that's been in business for something like 300 years. Okay. And so there are not – There's. it's hard for me to quantify exactly how many rum producers there are, um, but um, – there's a more extensive network of producers um, that is far less than the number of brands. But part of what comes out of that is the uniqueness of the production of each island and the ability of, um, to blend unique flavor profiles that I think sets it apart from whiskey. And so um, what you can do is each kind of region that produces it has its traditional flavor profile that it produces. Uh, some are what they call high ester. Jamaican rum is like this. So you get a lot of really intense fruit flavors out of that. Some are uh, a little bit um, more balanced between what you would call like fermentation flavors and like barrel flavors, something like, say, Barbados. Um, then you've got something like Guiana, which has a much more intensive flavored rum, um, a, a significant amount of both you know, fermentation and barrel aging. And then the Spanish style rums, which are, you know, Panamanian, Cuban, Dominican, that uh, those type of areas tend to be less fermentation based and more barrel. So you have milder fermentation flavors and you get a lot of like nuance with the different barrels that they use. So the tradition is to kind of mix and match from all these different areas. If you want a higher ester profile, you bring in more of like a Jamaican style rum. If you want less of that, maybe your base is Guineas or, you know, uh, Barbados or Trinidad. And so you can create this vast like matrix of flavors um, from, you know, a smaller number of distilleries and still really be able to differentiate what your final liquid is. Okay. So the fermentation techniques are very different. The barrel agings are te uh, techniques are also very different across each of these producing areas. So you generate like a really interesting blend at the end of it. You certainly do get like you know, single barrel, um, small batch rums, but the, the longest tradition has been about blending from different distilleries in different areas, which is less so, I think, especially in American whiskey. Um, it's a more akin to like what, say, Scotch whiskey would do. Okay. That makes sense. Um, for spiced rums, how how are they made from the infusion standpoint? Is that like is are is it maceration or is it like gin where it could be vapor infused and then the, or 
I guess just how there's how a few is different ways. Um, there's a few different ways. Um, some people are um, doing sort of like the not really the vapor infusion, but you can like actually distill out the flavors um, from a base. Um, a lot of the larger production rums are using a base that's formed out of Flavor House, uh, which is what we do. And the reason that we do that is that what does we, that mean? Uh, so you can go to a play. Uh, there's a um, companies that blend flavors. So if you wanted, um, I don't know, um, if you wanted some combination of like your favorite, like like Coke has a syrup, right? Yeah. And so there's a flavor house that puts all that stuff together. Oh, uh, okay, okay. You know, so there's like a there, and these companies will do flavors for liquids. If you have a a new soda flavor that you want to put together, or a new energy drink, or whatever. So like a. Would it be considered an extract or yeah. like a concentration of they those have, spices and stuff? Or what? Yeah, and that's basically what they do. So they have different methods. Some of them are maceration. Some of them are distillation. Depending on how the material is best extracted into okay. a solution, they'll use that, and then they'll combine that in to kind of create the finalized flavor profile. Okay. And so... Um, it's probably a lot... Cl- cleaner more predictable way mm-hmm. to make it right because then yeah like you're only making huge quantities of that flavor that you could hit every time instead of hoping that right. you've left it left those individual ingredients in the rum long enough in the right proportions each time to get a consistent yeah flavor profile which is exactly why we did that is we have the flavors that we have in the spice drum are a lot more subtle and delicate and to be able to infuse those in a precise way you know through a maceration process and a distillery every time is would be very difficult yeah um and so we're still using all natural flavors we're not using anything artificial um we're just doing it that way to ensure consistency that's what i th- I feel like extract has like mm-hmm. such a negative connotation mm-hmm. to it. And I wonder if it's just because like in a lot of, um, I guess, food realms or someplace like it was the cheap way mm-hmm. or the, like, the l- less desirable way to add a flavor to something. But in the alcohol world, like beers and everything, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's the process of concentrating and. The malt extract is what you're talking about, right? Or, well, not malt extract, but like uh, when you're making like sours or just Mm -hmm. adding flavoring to, or even hops. I mean, you can, it's become much more common to use hop extract because you get a much higher yield because you don't have all the vegetable matter Mm -hmm. uh, absorbing up the and wasting fluid. Um, So it's like, it, I think you say extract and instantly you're like, oh, that's not natural then. But really it's just you took out just one piece for efficiency, Mm -hmm. consistency, and exciting things are happening at Idiom Brewing Company. Already known for making a wide range of amazing beer, Idiom is introducing food to the taproom. Expressions at Idiom has officially opened. Come enjoy the flavors of delicious pizzas, mouth-watering sandwiches, and tasty salads, all expertly crafted to satisfy your cravings. Whether you're a foodie or just looking for a delightful meal with a beer, Expressions at Idiom has something for everyone. My personal favorite is the Elote Flavor Pizza, but you just can't go wrong with any of their offerings. If you are looking for a lunch deal, Expressions has you covered. 
Monday through Friday, 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., a pizza and a draft beer are only $16. So stop by Idiom Brewing and grab yourself a world-class beer and some phenomenal food. Yeah, so there's like um, there's a, a method of making gins and spiced rums where, like, let's say, especially, and this is a how a small distillery might do this. Um, if you want to ensure some type of consistency, you might get a neutral spirit, and you know, let's say that your flavor is you know orange, and then you can essentially distill out just a batch of orange. And then you distill out all your different flavors that you want in your spiced rum or in your gin. You know, you can distill out a batch of just, you know, juniper concentrate and orris root concentrate, what have you. And then you blend that back into another batch of neutral spirit. So it's um, it's a pro- it's kind of like that, but we're just not the ones doing the extraction process. We're not doing the distillation or the yeah. maceration of that. Um, and so they kind of package that blend for us. In a way. So it's similar, I think, in a lot of ways to how, you know, making gin or making a spiced rum would work on like a smaller craft scale. We just kind of concentrated it into one uh, one unit. So is that uh, do they take those companies, they take your flavor profile and blend like that you wanted or Mm -hmm. is okay? so you, you didn't have to like pick an off the shelf of what they offer that no. it's made to you, your specifications. You can do that. Um, if you want, what we did was, um, like I made these infusions at home and I kind of did what I just described. Like I infused green tea by itself. I infused vanilla and orange by themselves. I created a base from some off the shelf stuff and then added like milliliter by milliliter until I got the flavor profile I wanted. Once I get that, and then you can take that to these flavor houses and they'll custom make a, a flavor okay. base that matches that for you. So, yeah, this is not like something that you can just go buy. It's a proprietary formulation. Gotcha. Um, I mean, I think that makes it cooler because I could see the in that world where you have to just like they have options and you yeah. choose. But it's, it's cool that it's tailor made to uh, exactly what you wanted. Yeah, we wanted something very specific and they're. And in order to partly to, you know, the idea was different from anything else that was out there. So there really wasn't going to be anything that was on the shelf for us. Um, one thing I had mentioned when, before we started recording, I love the, the bottles and the branding. Like it, it has such a like elegance kind of upscale look to it. Right. And that's what we were targeting. Um, Part of so rum has a bit of a stigma in the general kind of consumer mind, and part of that is um, this archaic conception of pirates and sailing ships and you know very narrow um, areas and times in which you would consume it. You know, you consume it when you're on vacation, but you don't really think about it back at home. Yeah, and I would all, I mean, I would venture to guess you talk to 10 people, nine of them are just going to say rum is Captain Morgan, yeah. <laughs> And so a lot of the branding has been kind of your um, that in that scope, you know, your some sort of Caribbean motif. Yeah. yeah. And so we wanted, to, you know, rum has a lot more diversity to it. We wanted to bring in some diversity in the packaging, make it elegant, make it interesting. Um, I really like the design of the bottle, and um, that it's just nice and clean. You see the branding, but it uh, it sits nicely on a shelf, and it looks interesting. It and it, lo- it looks like a high end vodka yeah. bottle, kind of. 
Yeah, um, we spent a little bit more on the packaging than you know you absolutely have to, but I think it was worth it. Um, the glass tops are really fun. Um, the little kind of Easter egg with that is if you pull it straight, it doesn't really want to come out, so you just kind of have to pop it with your thumb from the side. They do look good, though. Yeah. The, the glass top instead so, of the, the classical wood with a cork shoved into it. <laughs> yeah. And they're also essentially 100% recyclable. There's a small gasket here that seals it, but other than that, everything about it is glass. Okay. Um. So you had, before we started recording, talked about like the the idea of sipping rums uh, or, or ones that are meant to be used in cocktails. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit more? Because I, I feel like that has definitely kind of been my mindset mostly when it comes to rum is that, that it's really just meant for... Uh, mixing it mm -hmm. with other things, uh, whether it just be a Coke or a full-fledged uh, cocktail. Uh, there haven't been too many that I've come across over the years where like, I take a drink. I'm like, oh, yeah, I would mm -hmm. just love to. Like Lion Distillery has a couple that mm -hmm. I could just sip on. They're so good. Uh, but I felt that way. Actually, I mean, I think all three of these you could just – I would pour over – some ice and drink, but the, the aged one, I, I love that. So, yeah, um, normally people think about aged spirits as something you can sip and or mix. Um, people most often think about rum as either spiced or white, and which is traditionally something that you would mix. We wanted um, all three products to have a ver level of versatility so that you could sip it if you enjoy that flavor profile. So we made a, a really rich, light white rum. That also contributes really well to cocktails. You still get that nice estuary fruit note profile that goes well with citrus and other uh, tropical fruit. But there's a nice creamy vanilla mouthfeel to it. When you sip it, it's got a little herbal quality. And it's got a really nice crisp finish to it. Where a lot of white rums, there's a, um, a technique of, of adding very neutral spirit to it to give you a really crisp kind of vodka-like finish, uh, which we didn't use that technique at all. So we're getting a more richly flavored um, light rum. Uh, which makes it very sippable. The same thing with the spiced rum. Again, you, if you sip a, you know, some Captain Morgan or something like that, you just get that intense flavor that almost has to be mixed in order to be palatable. Yeah, it needs to be diluted or almost masked by yeah. something else. And you know, those, you know, those some of those flavors are designed to go really well with Coke. You know, a lot of people think of like Captain and Coke. Well, you get all that vanilla. You can also find vanilla Coke in the marketplace. Yeah. Some of the rums have a, a specific like cherry forward note, which you also see cherry Coke. So they're designed for that mixing, especially in the most popular mixer. And with our spiced rum, we wanted something that did mix well and elevated cocktails, but the idea really came from kind of like a culinary background of like when you have a, a bite of something and you get like multiple experiences all at once, so you might get sweet, sour, spicy, and tart all at the same time or in layers. And so we wanted to create that same sort of experience with the spiced rum so that when you do sip it neat, you have a really nice uh, aromatic experience from it. You get these kind of, you get some vanilla, you get these sort of herbal qualities from the chrysanthemum, the jasmine. And when you sip it, there's citrus, there's, you know, again, some vanilla, there's a little bit of the ginger that gives you some of the spice. But the thing that really sets us apart for sipping is the green tea provides an astringency on the finish that really kind of 
keeps it from being cloying and overly sweet the way a lot of people expect rum to be, especially spiced rums. Is that a common uh, ingredient in a spiced rum or is that What's a, the green tea? No. Or I, I didn't think so. I got, so is that, how did you fall upon using green tea? Uh, so uh, I enjoy teas a lot. Um, and part of it was kind of inspired by certain, like sort of like Southeast Asian Chinese cooking where you do get that sweet, sour, spicy sort of, you know, experience all at the same time, depending on like some of the dishes that you might get. And so, you know, these are also spices that are savory, but not, uh, they're spice, but not sweet. And so a lot of the spices that are normally in spiced rum, the, you know, the cinnamon cardamom type of things, usually you find in baked goods. So we looked at that kind of Southeast Asian sort of, you know, lemongrasses in there, you've got the green tea, all of these things that kind of pair well, ultimately together and provide a spice profile but that are not, you know, what people normally think of as a spice, like, you know, black pepper or cinnamon. The, are there any other with green tea? Because I, I, I feel like I've never... I'm sure somewhere. Yeah, um, a, there's so many different kinds. You're right, it's probably likely. Somebody probably has so, something with green tea in it. I've not found anything that, you know, drinks like this um, anywhere else, so... Um, are the, do you have other brands also or just th those three? Just these three expressions of the one brand. Yeah. Are you going to expand on it or is you want to just do aged, white, and spiced? Like, like guess what? Coffee, mm -hmm. rum is popular. What the, what's the other one that's real popular? I can't remember. Yeah, and what we're probably going to do, I mean, so the uh, the white rum and the aged rum, we actually just completed production of those on like October of last year. So these are our two newest products. We've had the spiced rum in the market in California for a couple of years. But um, at the moment, you know, we kind of want to, you know, get this out into the market and, you know, get people to give the opportunity to try it, build some brand loyalty. And ultimately, we'll probably... I don't see us doing a flavored rum again sometime soon. You know, we would probably move to a more um, a higher age statement on the aged rum before we do something flavored. What are the common age uh, levels for rum? So that's a uh, it's kind of a tricky question because um, one of the things that's not super interesting but is important is all the regulations around like how spirits are classified. Yeah. You know, a lot of people can recite the bourbon standards to you, you know, new American oak barrel, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the U.S. has no standard for rum other than it's made from sugar cane and uh, is distilled less, slightly lower than what you would distill a vodka to. And so um, what you do is you kind of have – each country in each you know, area has sort of their own standards. Um, in the U.S., you do have to have whatever the age statement is, is the youngest Young. product. But um, e if you kind of look into each country, they're a little bit different. Um, some countries allow you to do an average of all of the ages. Some people let you say, well, you know, if the highest percentage of the blend is a certain age statement, you can use that number. So it's um, – it's a little bit across the board, and then you also get into the Solera aging, where you have like this subtle amount of you know fifty year old rum, but like how much of that's yeah. in there? 
A few um, drops. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just enough to qualify. Um, so age statements, they're really across the board. You can get fresh off the still rum that you use for tropical fruit cocktails, and they're really good. Um, you can get rums 25, 30 years old or, or even older, but normally in the 20s is what you is kind of the max you see most frequently. Um, the other thing, just to be aware that if you're out there and you're shopping based on age statements, not every number on a bottle means an age. Uh, some of them are, you know, there's a brand out there of 23, which sort of implies that that's the age, but it's not really oh, an age statement. It's just like, like number 23. So be kind of... Deceptive marketing. Yeah, there's a couple of those out there. And just be yeah. aware that, you know, if you see an age statement or if you see a number, make you know, maybe look a little bit further into it, make sure it's actually the age statement. Is, um, is that something that is... Uh, cared about by rum drinkers like uh the trying like the age of something or is it just uh like obviously in the whiskey world there's a lot of stock put in that uh is it as important in rum or is it more of just if that's the flavor profile you're looking for it's more about the flavor profile and the style it's not so much that older is always better. Okay. Um, aging does give you certain. That was a much better way to say what I yeah. was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Scotch malt whiskey really drove that value home for an age statement. Okay. Um, and that I think a lot of people really put a lot of into. Scotch is disgusting. Uh, it's, an, it's an acquired. It's a taste that I like sometimes, but not all the time. I hate peat so much. Uh, yeah, I can, I can, there's a lot of people who feel like way, that way, but like they really drove home the value of like, it's older, it's better. Yeah. And, um, which just as a kind of an aside for that is anytime you're in the U S like I mentioned, the youngest age statement is the youngest whiskey or rum. So if you see a, your, you know, nine year bourbon out there, especially if it's a larger scale production, they've probably blended older whiskeys into that to create a specific flavor profile. And so age statements, unless you're getting a bottled and bond uh, where it is like a very specific year and everything in that bottle is from that year or you're getting a single malt scotch, age statements are kind of important. They express, they don't really express the quality, you know, because I could have a, a blended whiskey that has, you know, 30% eight-year-old whiskey and, you know, 70%, you know, 12-year-old, and I'd still have to call it an eight. Yeah. And that 12-year-old that was mixed in could be just something that was held around because it didn't taste good, and it's mm -hmm. slowly <laughs> mixed yeah. in with... <laughs> yeah, you you know, some places might have some barrels that are over-extracted, but it gives, in a small amount, it adds that kind of extra, you know, barrel character to a whiskey that they're looking for. So age statements, you know, unless you're really looking, like I say, a bottled and bond or single malt scotch, they're not, they don't really tell the full story because this eight year that I've got um, is eight years in ex-bourbon barrels. We've also got 10-year-old uh, Oloroso Sherry rum blended into it. We've got 12-year-old uh, Madeira finished rum blended into it as well to create the final product. Is there, um, is there any kind of guidelines or stipulations when it comes to rum for the types of barrels used, or is that not within the? It's not really. Um, 
the importance isn't leveled on that as much as it is here on whiskey. Um, the majority of barrels used in the world are ex-bourbon barrels. Okay. Um, because you're dumping tens of thousands of those a year. And so that's what most scotch goes into. It's what a lot of rum goes into. It's what a lot of tequila goes into. And the barrel aging process is more um, more complex with rum because, you know, bourbons that one time use because you're trying to get all those extractive qualities out of there, the, the vanilla, the spices, all of that. With rum, you're also uh, using the second use barrel, third use barrel, and they'll go to what they call a neutral. So all the extractive qualities are out of it. And so it's just sitting there kind of getting oxidative effects and um, what they call transesterification, where it's like actually developing more flavor as it just kind of sits there. And those qualities can be more important to some rum manufacturers. Okay. So it's not a, a one and done with them on the barrels. They might use barrels for 30 or 40 years. What is, uh, what's your favorite way to drink your rum? Most often neat, um, okay. but that's, Honestly, that's a little bit more out of convenience than it is out of anything <laughs> else. Um, I love a really good daiquiri. Um, you know, the spiced rum does a very good, what they call a jungle bird, which is going to be lime, simple syrup, pineapple, and Campari. Um, so really like that cocktail with it. With the uh, eight-year, uh, I think it works really well. Uh, one of my favorite things is to do uh, Calvados, which is like a, it's a French brandy that's primarily made from apples. Uh, a little bit of pear might be mixed in depending on the producer. Uh, with that and a honey syrup. Um, so those are kind of my favorite cocktails with them, um, but I do most frequently just kind of sip them neat out of convenience. So much easier. Yeah, <laughs> it is. So with, over ice, no ice, just rum right into a glass and... I prefer it neat, um, but okay. that's all really, you know, personal preference. Yeah. Um, I like, you know, the way that it evolves in the glass over time. And so as a, you know, certain flavors are going to kind of evaporate off out of the glass um, and then new flavors will be more apparent. Uh, and so it just kind of evolves over time as it's just sitting there in the glass. And that's what I enjoy about it. Where is Nine North currently available? Uh, here in town, I've got it at uh, Riverside. Okay. So um, the, oh, yeah. It, but it's not super recent, but fairly recent that was available in Maryland, or is it always been just in back Maryland? in like November? Okay, yeah, yeah, so fairly recent. So, and here, you started in California, California, right? Yeah, my partners live there. And okay, for um, yeah, sort of light, not licensing, but um, there's some conveniences about operating there initially, yeah. Um, and so they're Middletown, where at Heritage Wine and Spirits, um, if you're a like Ellicott City, you've got Village uh, Wine and Spirits and Jason's Wine and Spirits, Amendment 21 in Baltimore. Okay. So we're kind of still getting going, getting a, a broader base, but there's certainly places here locally that, you're, that they're available. What's the best way to keep up to date with Nine North? Uh, through our Instagram uh, is probably our best, um, and you can follow that at you know, Nine North Rum. It's a... Uh is Panama a kind of like a epicenter for for making rum? rum? Or is not really? Oh, okay. Because um, I was going to say, like when when you said where the name come, came from, it seemed like that's kind of surprising that it was still available. But so um, it's not. There's really only two larger scale producers okay. there, um, and the the distillery we work with has been operating since about 1924. 
And um, but they only do this kind of work where they're only doing private label, private, you know, stuff like what we're doing, you know, custom blends for people like me. They okay. don't have their own brands. Where's the most common place for rum to be produced? Or is there not really a, I guess probably wherever Captain Morgan's made would be by volume. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Puerto Rico and the USVI, definitely the highest volumes there. Um, a lot of rum still gets shipped to England um, to Europe and is stored there and held there and blended there. So if you think of blending as production, that's a pretty large space for that. Okay. Um, as far as volumes of distillation, you're still looking at like Guiana does a large amount of rum. Um, yeah. Barbados, Jamaica, Trinidad does a lot of rum. Uh, people are usually familiar with Angostura bitters, but they're actually a very significant rum producer. Oh, I hadn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. And here locally, you don't really see Angostura rum that much, but they produce a lot of rum. Philippines, uh, there's a brand there that I think they produce the most by volume in the world. Okay. Um, so it's a global spirit. Um, and there's not, there's a couple of places that are, you know, definitely produce a lot more. Um, but there's a significant volume created, you know, Mauritius, um, Fiji, some in Australia. Where does, uh, rum rank in popularity in the U S and is it also catching the, like the wave of spirits gaining popularity? It's probably in you know a combination of things. It probably goes vodka, uh, whiskeys, tequila, and rum. So okay. maybe fourth more so. And it is gaining popularity. It's kind of where you're seeing you're seeing small groups getting really passionate about it. And certain subsets of the country, uh, there's some really active uh, rum clubs uh, in, say, Florida, uh, Southern California. People who like tiki um, are really coming back into the types of drinks and that sort of tiki aesthetic and tiki lifestyle. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it, it's got to be ride, obviously riding the mm. the ever-increasing popularity of tiki bars yep. and the, that motif. So, yeah, people like that kind of style. Um, we actually presented at a... Um, uh, a tiki event in San Diego, which was something like 4,000 people showed up just for tiki yeah, and rum. Good turnout. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of, it's getting more popular. Um, it's kind of, if you think about where tequila is at now, 20 years ago before Patron came out, um, rum is kind of there. It's a little bit past that point, but tequila pre Patron was not a premium spirit. Yeah. Okay. It was, perceived in the way that most people perceive rum now as sort of something that you buy as a commodity at a budget. That makes sense. What a, is there an, an analogous like premium rum brand or is that not happened with rum yet? There's not really a, um, so much a breakout in the way that Patron uh, was. <clears throat> um Kind of your large producers have always offered some kind of premium version okay. of a product. Um, what now you're kind of looking for is variations on that, right? Like what is um, what kind of blends can you do to bring something that beats the expectation of what people are used to? And, um, you know, some of the, the most high-volume Puerto Rican rums are not as flavorful as what you could do. And so 
there's a lot of opportunity to get new styles into the marketplace, new flavor profiles, flavor profiles that people aren't expecting. You know, there, there are, especially now that, you know, brown spirits have made more of a comeback over the past 10 to 15 years, there's a lot more interest in other age spirits. Makes sense. Yeah, definitely have never really spent much time learning about rum. Because I feel like that, that's a, especially locally in Maryland, there's not, there's not a whole lot of distilleries that focus or even offer rum mm. in their portfolios. It, yeah, um, I think there's probably a few reasons. Molasses isn't the easiest thing to work with. Okay. You know, it's, a, it's messy, it's sticky, it's got its own kind of parameters that you have to work within compared to like a grain. Um, different just production necessities. I think a lot of small distilleries also do try to focus in on, you know, what's traditional locally. And there's not a lot of places in the U.S. that have a rum tradition. You yeah, know. there's definitely not a rum heritage in in uh, Maryland. Maryland. <laughs> not really. I mean, there was probably a lot shipped into Baltimore back, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Yeah. But um, not, no one was making it here. No, the only place that had sort of that colonial era production was uh, Boston. Okay. And so they had a sort of a specific type of rum that they had. But usually, yeah, there's not really an American style of rum. But there are there's a number of different distilleries out there producing rum in in all the different styles that you see in the rest of the world. But there's not anything. It's kind of like a similar to the wine industry. You know, America does a wide variety of different types of styles and blends and grows grapes um, in different areas than what you might traditionally find in Europe. And they don't fit into those European classifications. And rum industry is kind of the same way. Traditionally, you're not using new barrels for rum in the Caribbean. So, you know, there are rum producers here that are. And you're getting something different and new with that. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of lot of different ways to differentiate rums. Yeah. Like the maybe even more so than other spirits. There is. I guess because a lot of it has to do like the lack of classification. Defi yeah, defined classification. So it, it's just the that it's made from the, in the pure US. cane sugar. Yeah, right. in the U.S. Well, in the U.S., it just has to be made from sugar of some type. Oh, okay, so not even cane it, sugar. Just well, that's the, what molasses <laughs> is actually uh, a byproduct of producing sugar, and that's what a large a majority of rum is made from. Okay, um, and so. Um, that's actually what the distillery we work with owns their cane fields. They it harvests, it goes to a sugar refinery, and then they get the molasses. They essentially sell the sugar content of the sugar cane okay. to the refinery, and then they get the molasses back. They uh, ferment it and distill it to create an additional product. And that's kind of you know early on in sugar production, it wasn't very efficient at refining and getting that the crystallized sugar out of it, which is what people wanted. So there was a lot of fermentable sugar left over in the molasses. And until fermentation and distillation technology made it to the islands, it was just a waste product. Um, so they had to be happy whenever. When they figured when, that yeah. out. <laughs> but if you go to certain places, um, you know, Martinique has a, a, is considered a, essentially a French state overseas. And they have a very detailed uh, set of instructions about what classifies a rum agricole what the types of sugarcane are, where they can be grown, when it can be harvested, the type of still, the size of still, the number of plates in the still, all of that is laid out in detail. 
Okay. So the, so it seems like it's almost m- the more important a spirit is to a region, the more classification that's applied to it. The French kind of have a habit they, of doing that anyway. So right, they have the all words, the words, everything. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at French wine designations, there's a yeah. lot of detail. I mean, the Calvados that I mentioned, detail. Um, it's just kind of culturally where it's at. Like if you look at um, scotch, for example, um, there's no American designation for what scotch is. It just says, you know, this product conforms to the standards of that are set forth by the scotch industry. Um, most of those are enforced through trade agreements. You know, so we're saying that, you know, no one can label a whiskey in America scotch, um, but they're in Scotland's also saying, well, we're not going to let anybody call this bourbon. Um, and just a lot of places, the, the Scotch Whiskey Association is very intense about managing that. And in a lot of the... Because well, it's right. So, like some parts of the world, they can use like colorings, right? Mm-hmm. With, with Scotch. You're not allowed to in the U.S. though, right? Or you are here. Scotch. Yeah. Well, you can use color. Uh, you can add color to bourbon in order, like a caramel color for consistency because people like to see the same. Okay. Their whiskey bottles look the same yeah. color time after time. Um, I'm not sure about scotch specifically, um, but like you can't add something to a scotch. If you import a, a case of scotch here, you can't add anything to it and still call it scotch. Okay. It, if you mess with it once it's left. Yeah, it's Scotland. Okay. Yeah, so I there are uh, distilleries that are importing you know malted whiskey from Scotland and aging it here and doing blends and things like that. Um, but it's American single malt. It's not okay. scotch. Um, but kind of get to the question that a lot of the um, regulatory agencies in the rum producing islands, um, some have a lot of value to it. Barbados is trying to get something specific through. Uh, Guiana came out with a kind of a broad generalization of it. Uh, Puerto Rico has specific rules about, you know, you can't sell anything, uh, rum that isn't at least 18 months old. Like, so every Puerto Rican rum, white or not, is barrel aged. And so you have to, instead of having the, the US TTB break everything down for you in the way that they do for whiskeys, because there's a ex- really extensive list, uh, you would just have to go see what the actual producing country's standards are. Okay. So it's a little bit more research. And some of them don't really have specific standards. Is there anything um, important about Nine North or I guess just rum in general that I haven't asked that people should definitely know? Mm, So I guess one of the things is really, um, you know, whatever you think about rum is, there's more to it than that, you know, and to be willing to go out and try something a little bit different, I think is very important. Um, There, it's like a whole other world out there and there's some things that are analogous to it. you can get some aged rums and they'll be sort of kind of like whiskey, but they're not really going to be whiskey. You know, yeah. you can't, it's not a one-to-one replacement. So if you have kind of have an open mind and go out and try it and enjoy it for what it is and knowing that, you know, certain rums are going to be closer to your existing flavor profile. And also that it might take you a little bit of time to get there. If you've tried rum once, you know, 10 years ago, or you had that really bad Captain Morgan experience in college <laughs> that everybody talks about, you know, it, you can move past that. There are other flavors of spiced rum. There are other, you know, flavor profiles beyond what you've probably experienced because 
the market has just been very dominated by a small subset of brands which have a certain flavor profile. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say I don't. I don't think I've ever tasted a spice rum that's close to yours. It's a it's a very unique mixture of flavors. Yeah, and that's kind of what we really wanted to set things apart, but not just the be nose different. on it's awesome too. What are you getting off of it? I'm not good at that. Oh. I'm not going to embarrass myself. That's okay. <laughs> it, it's, and it's different for everyone. And that's kind of one of the unique things about not just rum, but spirits in general. Like, I mean, the, the overwhelming smell is caramel yeah. to me. So that's going to come from we're adding, so I mentioned brown sugar when I was making yeah. it, so that we add that some of that second boil molasses that's pre-fermentation back into it. And so you get these like toffee, cocoa notes. Some people pick up a lot of the citrus notes. Some people pick up an overwhelming amount of vanilla. Um, all of those things vanilla. are there. I get the vanilla. I don't get any citrus. Yeah. But I also am stuffy right now. But it's mainly I. It's it's the caramel that I'm picking up the most that I like of the my enjoyment factor right. of the of the nose of it is the the I think it's the the mixture of the caramel and vanilla notes. Yeah, and that's what, you know, people pick up and are able to name things they're most familiar with. And um, you're you're really not, like, really wrong, right? If it I normally am because I'm really bad at identifying <laughs> what, what, what I'm smelling or tasting. Yeah, I think a lot of it is, um, you know, having a vocabulary and, like, being in terms of, like, okay, this is this flavor, this is that. But it's also going out and trying a lot of different yeah. foods and a lot of different beverages so that you can kind of reconnect that back to what you're smelling or tasting. Do you want to answer some intentionally stupid questions? Let's do that. Who would win in a battle between a ninja and a pirate? Ninja. That's wrong. It's a pirate. <laughs> Does pineapple belong on pizza? Um, not my pizza. That's correct. Uh, name a famous person you would love to meet. Oh, I don't know. Um, acceptable answer is also, I don't care about famous people. <laughs> I mean, I just like meeting interesting people. I don't yeah. know of anyone famous in particular. What's your go-to gas station snack? I don't really get gas station snacks. You're the first person <laughs> to not have an answer to that. Congratulations. Yeah, I, go to, I only go to gas stations for gas. Okay. Uh, if you were a NASCAR driver, who would three of your sponsors be? Um, I, I'm blanking on that. I'm uh, Nine North for sure. Um, <laughs> beyond that, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, I mean, it's really just a... Like three things you like. Three things <laughs> that I like. Oh, okay. Um, um, or nine, like what, what you would want access to free marketing <laughs> access of. Uh, we'll do Nine North. We'll do McClintock Distilling because those guys are really awesome. Um, they're okay. They're all right. <laughs> Most days. And um, after that, um, some good quality coffee. How do you drink your coffee? Black. Iced, hot? How Both. Do you, okay. I just do cold. I don't like hot drinks. I prefer cold drinks. I like my food hot and my drinks cold generally, but with exceptions. Um, what's your most prized possession? Uh, I guess my dogs. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? 
Anything is a Christmas movie if you want it to be. <laughs> if you try hard enough. If you try hard enough, yes. Flats or drumsticks? Uh, drums. Also wrong. They're flats. just easier. You just haven't learned the right method for, for flats then. Uh, if you had a pet parrot, what would you teach it to say? Um... Hi. Not straight into the point. <laughs> uh, we'll do one more. What is your go-to excuse to get out of plans? I just don't make them. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't even beat around a bush. Solve to that problem before it starts. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank and you. Bringing these delicious rums for me to try. I love. I love. Love. Love the aged one. That one's really good. I mean, all three are great, but the I really like the aged one. Uh, so thank you for your time today. Uh, and thank you everyone for listening. Awesome. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Chris. Cheers. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Oh my God, that's good.